Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. This week, why scientists are curious about Mars. The Curiosity rover has a very involved set of instruments, the most complex set that's ever been flown to the surface of another planet. And we should be able to make a variety of measurements to create a new insight into the habitability of ancient environments on Mars, as well as get a sense for the current surface environments of Mars. This is the latest NASA mission to the Red Planet landing this week. We'll hear from two of the key scientists involved. Plus, where else in the solar system will we be exploring next? John Zarnecki, one of the pioneers of the Cassini-Huygens mission to Titan, joins us to explain why he wants to go back there. Hello, it's Sunday, August the 5th. I'm Chris Smith, and also with us this week is Dominic Ford. Hello, and also I'll have a round-up for you later of what scientists have discovered about black holes. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. In November 2011, one of NASA's most ambitious missions yet, mounted to explore Mars blasted off destined for the Red Planet, carrying a mini Cooper-sized science mobile laboratory called Curiosity. But how do you land something the size and weight of a car on a planet millions of miles away? When Curiosity launched, I spoke with NASA's mission chief scientist, John Grotzinger, to find out. To begin with, we launch, and then on the cruise from, from Earth to Mars, and there's a solar array which keeps the rover charged. It'll take us about eight months. And then uh, we begin to feel the pull of the gravitational field and we enter the planet's atmosphere and begin to descend. But this time, in contrast to previous Mars landed missions, the aeroshell, which is the bit that you see in these videos that's sort of screaming along and with flames shooting out beneath it, it's actually able to fly a bit like an airplane wing. And then there are thrusters that are activated to allow it to correct the trajectory. And so instead of plunging vertically through the atmosphere, it's actually coming down at quite a low angle. And then when it decelerates to about Mach 2, it deploys the parachute, and that slows it down even further. And then when we get down to maybe a kilometer above the surface, the heat shield falls away. And from that now, everything gets very different from previous missions. We now have a fourth spacecraft called the Powered Descent Vehicle. And the Powered Descent Vehicle has eight rocket thrusters. And beneath it is attached the rover, pretty much ready to go, with the wheels hanging down. The descent stage then will will drop down. The thrusters will push against the gravitational pull of Mars until it hovers 20 meters or so above the surface, and then it reels the rover out on a a set of cables down to the surface of the planet, and then the cables are cut, the descent stage goes off, crash lands, and the rover, pretty much it lands ready to go as a result of that process. All being well. And not surprisingly, NASA's scientists are dubbing the landing process seven minutes of terror. But what will Curiosity be looking for and how? With us now is NASA's Dr David Blake, who is also working on the mission. Hello, David. Good morning. You're in Mission Control, of course, in California. Yes. Now, where is Curiosity's landing site? We're going to land at a place called Gale Crater, one of the oldest, biggest and deepest craters in the surface of Mars. So... Simply put, it's, it's a place where a lot of sediment and water could have accumulated very early in Mars history. When you land there, what will you actually do? Is it just a sort of one giant crater, or is there any specific set of structures that you'll be trying to examine? Oh, there's just a, just a whole bunch of stuff to look at. The, the, the central mound of Gale, which is 5,000 meters tall, uh, is basically made up of sediments that were deposited in, under the influence of water, either lakes or streams or something like that, maybe as early as 4 billion years ago. So we're going to be going up through that sediment a layer at a time, just like reading a book, 
and determining the early environments that happened on the Mars surface, maybe four and a half, or rather four to three and a half billion years ago. So it's a way of retracing Mars's history without actually having to go too far. So is there effectively a mountain in the middle of the crater? How did, how did you get this strange structure? Good question. So uh, Gale Crater, uh, first there's a big impact basin. It's very deep, four kilometers below the present average surface of Mars. And effectively, this crater was infilled with sediment to the point where the entire crater was, was inundated and filled above the brim. And then later on, over the, over the you know, next uh, billion or two billion years, by erosion, a lot of that material was eroded away. So we're left with this remnant, this erosional remnant mountain of the original infill of the Gale Crater. Was that water then that was moving things around to fill in and then re-erode the crater? Uh, not so much the erosional part, but certainly the infilling part. Uh, there's, we, we have definite evidence of hydrated minerals and uh, and things that look like where liquid flowed. So we're, uh, we're pretty much uh, sure that, that water was associated with the deposition of the sediments, but I think maybe the erosion was created more by wind over billions of years. And curiosity will drive towards this, I suppose, timeline of sediment and what starts sampling each in turn. Yeah, the landing ellipse, the center of it is going to be within six kilometers of the beginning of the Gale Mound, of, of Mount Sharp. And we know from, from uh, orbiting data, from orbital images, that there's very finely divided sediment that contains clays and, and hydrated sulfates and things like that uh, interbedded. And this is exactly the place that we want to go. So talk us through how Curiosity actually works, because it's a huge rover. What's going on inside it, and what's it going to do with the sediments that it picks up? Well, uh, it is big. <laughs> I've stood beside it, and, and it, it towers over me. Now, uh, the MER rovers, which uh, one is still operating on Mars, were kind of like field geologists, and they would go out and, uh, and sample a rock, look at a rock, do something with the arm instruments, but it really didn't have a laboratory to do anything other than that. So Mars Science Laboratory has not only a field geologist tools, but also there's a, there's a, there's a whole uh, full-up uh, laboratory inside the rover to do laboratory quality analyses. So once we look out and see a sample, there's just a wide variety of, of instruments. Uh, the mast has, uh, has telephoto cameras uh, in color. It has something called ChemCam which is uh, kind of like a Star Wars type of a deal. Uh, it fires off a, a, a pencil-thin laser beam, which makes a plasma of rock as much as seven meters away. And then it images that little plasma plume uh, in the infrared, and it tells you what elements are present there. So we can kind of zap rocks as we go along and say, hey, let's go over there. That looks like an interesting rock or outcrop. And then once we get there, We've got uh, something like a little geologist's hand lens to put down there that gets uh, very high-resolution color images. Uh, we have uh, something that was also on the MER rovers, uh, an APXS, which tells us the elements that are present in the rock. And then we have a drill, which unlike the MER rovers, we can actually drill or down about five centimeters into a rock and take that powder or take a scoop of powder from the ground and deliver that to our two laboratory instruments. And the two laboratory instruments, one's called Chemin for chemistry and mineralogy. That's my instrument, and it will tell you the mineralogy of, of whatever's given to it. And the other's called SAM, and SAM is really three instruments. It's a mass spectrometer, a gas chromatograph, and a laser spectrometer, and that's going to tell us the nature of any organic compounds that are present in the soil. So you will spot interesting things across this timeline. You can work out roughly when in Mars's history each of the samples you're processing has come from, and you can then probe it for what chemicals are there. This means you can then do interesting geology to work out what Mars's history was, when it was wet, when it was dry, maybe some clues about the magnetic field, for example. But NASA have denied that this is a life-finding mission. Why have NASA gone down that path? 
Well, uh, that's a that's kind of a, a, a perilous position to take because life people kind of think of well we either found it or we didn't find it, and we we are looking for habitable environments that is environments that would be clement for life to have formed or or persist, and that means uh, as far as we know we're we're kind of, we're kind of myopic because we only know of one type of life and that's Earth life. Uh, we we want a place where water is present. We want a place where uh, energy uh, uh, could have been, where you know rocks are being dissolved and reprecipitated and producing a bit of energy, and we want a place where organic materials could could uh, persist. And so we know all those things together and a temperature that, uh, that's kind of a clement environment for life. So that's kind of what we're looking for. But at the same time, we know what the signatures that go with Earth-type life are. If you spotted those sorts of signatures, would you be able to say, well, that looks like life? Similarly, if you were to land Curiosity in the middle of the desert on Earth, would it conclude that Earth is a place where life exists on the basis of the measurements it were taking? Well, that's that's a good question. On, on Earth, uh, life is life has just captured every part of the planet. So if we go to the the most desolate parts of the planet, and if we took these instruments and, and took a sample and analyzed it, we would find life. Uh, I don't care where you go, the Atacama Desert, uh, Antarctica, you, it would be difficult to sample a place where you couldn't find some evidence of organic compounds that, that would indicate life. Now, Mars isn't quite so replete that we know of with life. Uh, we don't see anything like that. So we're really, really looking for chemical signatures for organic molecules that might suggest that uh, either life or the precursors of life would have been there. We've got to start somewhere, haven't we? David, thank you very much. That's David Blake. He is one of NASA's scientists working on the Mars Science Laboratory mission. Dominic. Now, we've been hearing about the challenges of landing rovers on Mars, but there have also been missions to land probes elsewhere in the solar system, and each environment brings its own challenges. In 2004, the Huygens probe landed on Saturn's moon Titan, taking the first images of the surface of such a distant body, and a key architect of that mission was the Open University's Professor John Zarnecki, who joins us now. Now, John, first of all, tell us a bit about Huygens and what it saw as it descended towards the surface of Titan. Well, you should realise that we'd never seen the surface of Titan because Titan is shrouded in this sort of photochemical smog. And uh, so as we descended through the clouds, we for, for a long time we saw nothing at all. But then from about 15 kilometres, we started to get an indication of the surface and we saw... Um, what look like river channels and, uh, and in fact what's called a dendritic system so a system of, of rivers and tributaries and so on and then we landed and we saw an undulating vista with uh, pebbles and, and small rocks but what you have to understand is that Titan is an icy world so we were seeing in fact things that looked familiar like hills and channels and pebbles and so on but these were not made of rocks and carved by water as on earth but it, the basic building block was ice and the liquid is uh, liquid uh, methane liquid ethane Rather like camping gas. It sounds like you wouldn't want to drop a match into one of these lakes. Um, yes and no. I mean, we, the, the, because of the temperature, it's very cold there, about minus 180 degrees. So there isn't, we think, any free oxygen. So you'd probably be safe dropping a match, but it's not an experiment I'd like to do. Now, I remember following this mission in 2004, and it seemed rather a shame after I think it took you seven years to get there this only operated for three hours as it descended into the atmosphere. Why couldn't you have made this longer mission? Well, in fact, three hours was far, far longer than we expected. We were sort of planning on three minutes, so, so three hours was a great luxury. It was fundamentally an atmospheric probe, so it was a bonus getting any time and any data on the surface. You have to understand this was incredibly challenging technically. We didn't know if we'd be landing on ice, whether we'd be landing in uh, a hydrocarbon sea. So it was very difficult to design for survival on the surface. So for that reason, it was all focused on atmospheric measurements. But now that we know much better what Titan is about. We want to go back and actually survive for a long time on the surface. Now, I'll ask you in a moment about the time mission, which I know you're working on at the moment. But first of all, in the nearer future, I know there are other 
interesting environment where the European Space Agency is hoping to land, including on the surface of a comet in 2014. Tell me a bit about that. Yes, indeed. Well, this is a mission called Rosetta, which has been flying for eight years already, and it is, again, a very ambitious mission to land on the surface of a cometary nucleus. The comet, it's not a household name name like Comet Halley. This is Comet Churimunov-Gerasimenko. We tend to call it Comet CG. And uh, in two years' time... Rosetta is going to go into orbit around this comet and deliver a lander onto the surface. Now, that's a real challenge because a comet, it's it's a small object, you know, maybe 10 kilometres across. So there's virtually no gravity. So the real challenge there, apart from getting there and getting to the surface, is actually staying on the surface. Now, I guess as with your descent onto Titan with the Huygens probe, you have very little idea actually what you're going to find when you get there, what kind of surface you'll be touching down onto. Yeah, that's a very good point indeed. And in fact, the instruments, and in particular the harpoon, which is going to try and sort of snare the probe onto the surface of the comet, is designed for a surface which can vary between candy floss or concrete, you know, uh, in in terms of hardness and consistency. We we are that uncertain uh, as to what we'll actually be landing on. So you might even sink in. Yeah, we could. We could. You know, so just, you know, put the date in your diary, November the 10th, 2014, about 10.30 in the morning. Well, I'm sure we'll look forward to that. Now, I know there were a couple of missions to land on icy moons in the outer solar system that you're very interested in at the moment. Now, first of all, JUICE, this is for Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Tell me a bit about those moons. Okay. well, I mean, we're finding that... Actually, perhaps, as far as the giant planets are concerned, Jupiter and Saturn, it's the small icy moons which go around these uh, giant planets that actually might be more interesting than the giant planets themselves. These are small bodies, but it looks increasingly as if a lot of them actually have perhaps subsurface oceans. And uh, so this mission, JUICE, as it's called, I hope we come up with a better name before we launch it, it's not going to land, but it's going to go into an orbit around Jupiter and it will have several close passes of, of several of these moons. So it's the start of our really deep investigations of these, these strange icy worlds. Now, I know your real interest is with the time mission which will hopefully take off and visit Titan again in 2016, will take off in 2016. I gather there's a real problem of how to power something that far out in the solar system. Well, yes, that that is always the case. You know, we're so far away from the sun that we can't really use solar cells. So we use um, plutonium to generate electricity. But this is a really exciting mission if it's selected, and we should know later this month, it's in competition with two others. And the aim is to put a probe directly into one of the seas on Titan, because now we know where they are. With Huygens, we didn't know anything about the surface. I'm sure we'll keep our fingers crossed for you with that selection process. That was Professor John Zanecki of the Open University. Dominic, thank you very much. John, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, Chris Smith and Dominic Ford. If you would like to join in our conversation and ask a question, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. Still to come, we'll find out how on earth it's possible to control a rover that's over 34 million miles away. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's other leading scientific breakthroughs. Dominic, what have you got for us? Well, a paper published this week in Nature shed some new light on the way that planets orbit their parent stars. Now, if you look at our own solar system, what you find is that all of the planets orbit in much the same plane. So if you were to make a three-dimensional model of our solar system, it would look a bit like a flat dinner plate with all the orbits of those planets in that dinner plate. And the sun at the centre actually has its rotation axis aligned, so it's rotating in the same sense as all the planets are orbiting around it. And that's broadly what you might expect from our idea of how planetary systems form, because we think 
planetary systems form out of what we call protoplanetary disks. So you have a gas cloud which is collapsing down to form a star in its planets, and that collapses into a disk which will be rotating in some sense. And the planets and the sun both ultimately drive their rotation from the rotation of that disk, which will be common to both the star and the planets. So are there some systems where that's not the case then? Well, it's rather curious because the planets that we've seen around other stars have generally not followed this pattern. And most of these planetary systems have been quite odd because they've contained what we call hot Jupiters. So these are very large planets about the size of Jupiter, but orbiting very close into their parent stars at about the distance of Mercury from our own Sun. So these are very hot, very massive planets. And curiously, they don't orbit in the same sense as other planets in the system or as the star rotates. And the question is, is our solar system unusual or are these actually what most planetary systems are like? But we know that our own Jupiter and Saturn, our giant planets, have moved around a little bit during the evolution of our solar system, but not on the dramatic scale of one of these systems where the Jupiter has moved right in close to the host star. So is it that movement that means that things are a bit mixed up and a bit different then? That's right. Now, writing in the journal Nature, Roberto sanchez Adreda of MIT and his colleagues actually present the first observations of the orbits of some planets in a more normal system, a bit like our own solar system. And what they find is that it's actually very similar to our own solar system. This is the Kepler-30 system observed with the Kepler Space Telescope. And they find that the three planets in this system orbit in the same plane that the star rotates. And they can measure that using star spots on the surface of this star that they actually have the sensitivity to pick up. So it appears that it's only systems with these hot Jupiters close in which have these strange rotation axes. So that suggests these systems have some violent history that has both moved these planets in close towards their host stars and has also upset their rotation axes. And I suppose we tend to notice them because those are the easiest systems to spot, these big hot Jupiters, because they make the star wiggle a bit in a way that we can detect. And so we've tended to spot those ones first. And the more normal systems, like our own, are going to be a bit harder to spot and and therefore they haven't been studied as closely. So therefore, because we've got fewer of them to look at, we've concluded that we're a bit abnormal when actually we're not. That's right. This is a very young science. We have to remember the first planet around a star other than our own was only discovered in 1992. We've only been doing this for 20 years, and obviously we've picked up the most obvious planets, and those are the big ones close in. Well, totally back down to Earth now. Dominic, let me ask you, do elephants purr? I'm not sure. (laughs) Neither were the scientific community. Um, There was an American lady who a number of years ago detected that that, uh, African elephants were capable of producing infrasound. These are vibrations down below the threshold of human hearing. She says uh, when she made the observation that she could tell that there was something coming out of these elephants because she could feel it, although she couldn't hear anything. And subsequently, measurements showed they were producing sound waves at about 20 hertz. But how were they producing these sound waves? Were they doing it like a cat? And evidently some other animals, including genets, rabbits and maybe squirrels, also have the ability to purr. And purring is a very specialised process where nervous control coming down from the brain causes the vocal cords to actively open and close about 30 to 50 times per second. And this interrupts air flowing over the vocal cords, causing pulses of air, and so you get a buzzing noise at about 30 hertz. So do elephants do that... Or do they produce sounds in the same way that we produce sounds? And the way we do it is we just blow air at a certain pressure against closed vocal cords. If you imagine these two pieces of tissue pushed together, you put a pressure of air behind them, and at a certain threshold pressure, they pop apart. And as they pop apart and then come back together again, you're going to make a vibration, and that's how we speak and sing. Obviously, no one's going to stick a laryngoscope down an elephant's throat because they would probably be killed in the process. But also, how do you make the elephant oblige? Luckily, there's a a paper actually published, it's in the journal Science this week, researchers at the University of Vienna, Christian Herbst and his colleagues, they obtained an elephant that had died of natural causes at a zoo in Berlin. And they took out the larynx, they connected it to an artificial lung system, and they were able to pressurise the larynx, having closed the vocal cords in the elephant together. And they made electrical measurements of how closely opposed to each other the vocal cords were, as well as microphone recordings and also very fast photography of the 
um, vocal cords in action so they could slow it down. And what they found is that by pressurising the larynx at about four times the pressure you need to drive human vocal cords, they started to produce a buzzing noise at about 16 hertz. So it's close to the 20 that you measure naturally. And so they conclude that the elephants are perfectly capable of making this low-pitched communication, and they use these very low frequencies to communicate over very long distances because very low-frequency sounds are not attenuated or um, wiped away by travel through air in the same way that high frequencies are. So they, they are capable of doing this using just the normal behaviour of their vocal cords in the same way that we sing and talk to each other. They can't, though, rule out that elephants aren't also capable of purring were you to look at an alive, awake, behaving elephant. But there we go. Sounds Intriguing fun. story, isn't it? I could see that would be much easier than trying to stick your instruments down an elephant's trunk. Of course, vets do do that, but usually when the animal is anaesthetised, not when it's awake. And when it's awake, it needs to be awake to purr. I don't think they purr. Now, schistosomiasis. This is actually also known as bilharzia, and it's a disease that's caused by worms, and they grow for part of their lives in a species of aquatic snail, and they then infect humans that are exposed to water where those snails live. More than 200 million people are infected, and in the majority of cases, people carry the worms for many years, and this leads to damage to organs inside the person, including damage to their bladder and also to their liver. Adult humans eventually develop immunity to the infection, but for some reason, children don't. But now scientists have discovered why, and this could help us to develop a new vaccine. Kate Mitchell, who carried out this work while she was a PhD student at Edinburgh University, is the scientist behind the breakthrough. Hello, Kate. She's with us now. Hello. So how did you actually do this? We took a fresh look at several decades' worth of data that's been collected by many people looking at infection levels and antibody levels in, in different um, populations. And then we used new computer models that we've developed to investigate a number of different ideas that people have about how protective immunity develops to schistosomiasis. So we took a number of these different theories and ideas and used these to construct different models. We had almost 3,000 models in total that we looked at quite systematically. And then we ran millions of computer simulations to see whether the models could produce the patterns that we see in the field data. What were the hypotheses that you started with? What sorts of questions or possibilities were you playing with or modelling when you started? So one of the main ones we were interested in was there's a theory that it's only when the adult worms die that they release the right proteins that can stimulate an immune response. The worms live for several years inside humans, so that could be delaying the exposure. So we looked at that as one of our hypotheses, but we also wanted to check well, what happens if actually those proteins are coming from other stages of the life cycle, so the, the infectious stage when you're initially infected or the eggs that the worms lay. And we also weren't sure what's the effect of the protective immune response. Is it preventing people from becoming reinfected? Is it killing the worms directly or is it stopping them laying the eggs? And it's the eggs that cause a lot of the damage that we see. Um, so we looked at all those different combinations. There are also different ideas about the precise nature of the immune response, how long the worms live for, that, that kind of thing. Where did you get the data to then test these theories against? So we had several large field studies that our group at the University of Edinburgh has conducted in Zimbabwe over the last 20 years or so, data from different populations um, where we'd measured infection levels and antibodies in, in children and adults in those communities. We also used published data from Zimbabwe and other African countries going back as far as the 1960s. So you had all these hypotheses, you'd built clever models that enable you to test all the possibilities so you know what the outcome should be if that possibility is right. You then compare that with the data and see if it fits the pattern you would expect if that hypothesis is true. What emerged as the, the thing that you think is the reason why the adults get the immunity eventually and then spit out the worms? Not really, obviously, they <laughs> suppress the worms. I don't want to give anyone nightmares, but children don't. What's going on? So we actually got a very clear answer, and it related to some of those, those theories that I outlined earlier, that the protective response, so the one that's actually protecting against disease, um, is triggered by proteins that are released when the adult worms die. And this is stimulating an antibody response. And what those antibodies are actually doing is preventing the remaining worms from laying any further eggs. Um, and the reason why this 
is usually only seen in adults is just because it, it takes a long time to actually get enough of exposure for enough worms to die and trigger enough of a response for it, for it to be effective. Because the worms themselves can suppress the immune system, can't they? They sort of evade the immune system so that the immune system can't see. They're almost invisible, like cloaked to the immune system when they're alive. And it's only when they die then that then that cloaking device, for want of a better phrase, breaks down and the immune system can see the worm, then makes a response to it, and that response is then effective at stopping other worms that are alive making any eggs. Partly. So that, that was one hypothesis that we tested, is it are the worms just suppressing this, this protective response? And actually that wasn't really giving us results that were consistent with the data. So they certainly are suppressing some responses. I mean, there are all sorts of immune responses going on. There are a lot of um, inflammatory responses to the eggs, so we suspect the suppression is of, of an early response that would damage the worms. But this actually, the response that we're detecting here with these models is protective response is a different response that's just taking an awful long, long time to build up enough exposure. If it takes a long time, what is the prospect then of being able to make some kind of vaccine that will make a child make that response so that if they are exposed to the snails in the water and the worm tries to infect them, it won't be able to? It's probably partly a question of, of quantity um, and of identifying the correct proteins that you need to uh, to put into your vaccine to provoke the right response. But yeah. this would suggest that it is possible. So if we can simulate what happens to an adult given enough time in a child, we would be able to protect a child potentially against bilharzia. Yes, yes, that would be the aim. Let's hope so. Thank you very much. That's Kate Mitchell. Uh, she's now working at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she was talking there about the work she did towards her PhD when she was at Edinburgh University. And she published that, incidentally, this week in the journal PNAS. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, Chris Smith and Dominic Ford with you this week. Um, in a minute, we'll return to our theme this week of exploring other worlds inspired by the landing of Curiosity on Mars tomorrow morning at 6.30, we hope. But before that, uh, let's have another look at some other in exciting space science-focused news that's come out this week. There's a big tranche of papers on black holes, Dominic. That's right. This week, the journal Science have published a special issue dedicated to black hole research. And Rob Fender of the University of Southampton has reviewed what we know about the X-ray emission of black holes. Now, these are the collapsed end state of the lives of massive stars. These are stars several times the mass of our own sun, and when they collapse at the end of their lives, no force can overcome their gravity, and so the star just collapses down to a point, and nothing, not even light, can escape from that black hole. And we can make an estimate of how many black holes we think there are in our own galaxy because we know how many massive stars there are and they live quite short lives for only a few million years. So we think there are probably hundreds of millions of black holes in our Milky Way galaxy of masses a few times the mass of our own sun. The problem is we can't see them because not even light can escape from their surfaces, so they appear dark. We can only, in fact, see them when they interact with other objects in the galaxy. And the telltale sign is that you see X-ray emission from these black holes. And when you see X-ray emission from a black hole, what we think is happening is that there's a companion star close by that black hole, and material is being sucked off the outer envelope of that star and is then spiralling in towards this black hole, becoming incredibly hot and dense as it does so, reaching incredible temperatures of hundreds of millions of degrees, so that rather than glowing red hot, it glows X-ray hot as it falls in towards the event horizon of that black hole. Now, this is an incredibly violent process. It's really explosive. And so black holes don't tend to feed continuously off their companions. A bit of gas will fall onto the surface, it will spiral in, there will be an explosion of heat and x-rays and that will actually blow material away from the black hole and you may then have to wait several months or even several centuries for it to turn back on again. But ironically, you are literally giving the black hole an x-ray because the behaviour of the material falling in and the ejection of that signal towards us that we can register then enables us to wind back the clock and work out what must have happened to produce that. So it sort of indirectly gives us an insight into the structure of the black hole. Yes, that is the only means we have of knowing how big the black hole is and whether it's charged or spinning and other interesting questions we can ask. A very interesting question is, is whether these hundreds of millions of black holes are actually there. 
And the problem is if they're only bursting, say, every few centuries, we've only been looking for a matter of decades. And so there are many of these objects that we just haven't seen yet because they haven't produced one of these bursts. But the real question is how these relate to the supermassive black holes which are at the centres of galaxies. We think most galaxies have black holes at their cores which weigh millions of times the mass of the Sun. And we think these black holes are formed somehow from these much smaller stellar mass black holes. And we don't really understand how that process takes place. So one black hole eats another black hole, becoming bigger in the process until you've got a sort of mega black hole. Or a well, macro black hole. That would certainly work. The problem is the galaxy is a very large place and the chances of one black hole colliding with another one in the vast emptiness of the Milky Way galaxy is tiny. So there must be some process that brings more mass to these black holes to help them get up to a mass of millions times the mass of the Sun. And do we have any theories as to how this could have happened? In fact, there was a paper just last week that was saying that in a very dense environment where you've got lots of gas, lots of friction, that disrupts the orbits of these black holes and that can perhaps bring them together. It's interesting stuff, this, isn't it? Thank you very much, Dominic. Now, with a roundup of the other science news stories that have been hitting the headlines this week, here is the Naked Scientist Martha Henriquez with our Naked Scientist News Flash. A protein found in the brain of Alzheimer's sufferers has been shown to relieve paralysis in mice with the autoimmune disease multiple sclerosis, or MS. MS is caused by the immune system attacking the protective myelin sheath around nerve fibres in the central nervous system. One symptom is inflammation of the brain, which can result in paralysis. Lawrence Steinman of Stanford University reports in Science Translational Medicine. We found in the multiple sclerosis brain a molecule called beta amyloid. This molecule has a famous and villainous role in Alzheimer's disease where most scientists think it's the culprit at the root of the Alzheimer's dementia. So we attempted to find out what this molecule might be doing by going backward and seeing, okay, it's in the MS brain. What might it do in a mouse model of multiple sclerosis? To our uh, great surprise, the molecule provided great benefit. Animals that were paralyzed became uh, better and the inflammation melted away in their brain. Females outlive males not only in humans but in many other species as well. According to research in The American Naturalist, this discrepancy could arise from the mechanism of inheritance of mitochondrial DNA. Damien Dowling and his research team at Monash University have identified mutations in fruit fly mitochondrial DNA that are harmful to males but not females. What we did was uncover numerous mutations within the genes of mitochondria that cause males to age faster and live shorter lives than females. The existence of these mutations can be entirely attributed to a quirk in the way that mitochondrial genes are passed down from parents to children. While children receive copies of most of their genes from both their mothers and their fathers, they only receive mitochondrial genes from their mothers. The implication is profound. It means that evolution's quality control process only screens the quality of mitochondrial genes when they're inside of mothers. So if a mitochondrial mutation occurs that harms fathers but has no effect on mothers, this mutation will slip through the gaze of natural selection unnoticed. Cuckoos famously parasitise other bird species by laying eggs in their nests and allowing the host species to raise them. Not only that, but cuckoo chicks have evolved to push out the host's own eggs in order to gain their foster parents' full attention. Cuckoos also mimic the appearance of predatory grey sparrowhawks, intimidating the hosts out of attacking the cuckoo. However, one host species, the reed warbler, can learn to recognise disguised cuckoos for what they really are and will mob them on sight. Research published in Science by Rose Thorogood of the University of Cambridge shows that cuckoos are now evolving a counterattack. A new disguise of a red-brown plumage helps part of the cuckoo population avoid reed warbler mobbings. So we know that cuckoos are in a race with their hosts. We know from previous work that reed warblers have learned to defend themselves against cuckoos by watching their neighbours to tell when a grey cuckoo is a grey cuckoo and not a dangerous sparrowhawk. But we also know that cuckoos come in different colours, so we wanted to know if this was yet another cuckoo trick to beat these host defences. So the most exciting thing of what we found is that the reed warblers actually only learn about the cuckoo morph that they see their neighbours mob. And why this is exciting is it means that 
They're sharing information amongst each other to try and beat their enemies, but actually in the process of sharing this specific information, it's in turn selecting for this new cuckoo disguise. And finally, Aaron Johnson at the University of Pennsylvania has been exploiting a novel way to make robots better at travelling over rough terrain by adding a tail. Research at the University of California, Berkeley, has helped understand how animals use their tails for enhanced balance and agility. Johnson has applied these findings to create a tail for Rex, a six-legged robot who was perfectly capable on flat ground but needed a little extra help on rougher ground. This has allowed Rex to be able to right itself when it's falling. Two examples. One is if you sort of nose down, you're going to hit your face on the ground and, and maybe break a leg. Um, but instead it kicks the tail and is able to land on all six legs safely. And then the other case, maybe you're starting out level because you're running off of a cliff, but as you run over the edge, you're going to start to pitch downwards. And so it's able to detect that, kick its tail up, and still land on its feet. And complete with its new tail, Rex is now capable of safely falling nose-first from heights of 2.7 times its own body length. You can see clips of Rex in action on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. Martha Henricus with our news flash. You can find the transcripts and the references for all our news this week on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. Coming up, we'll find out about a new project that's trying to work out a way of controlling rovers automatically on the surfaces of distant planets. In 2006, scientists discovered that plants produce significant amounts of the greenhouse gas, methane. The research caused quite a stir, and it led to a rethink about the role of plants and forests in global warming. One of the questions that needed answering is how plants emit methane, and so a research group at the University of Edinburgh set up the aptly named Methane Project. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met with Andy McLeod at the University School of Geosciences to find out more. The Methane Project is to investigate the mechanisms by which plant leaves can emit the greenhouse gas methane. So how do you go about doing that? Because I don't see many plants here in your laboratory. <laughs> well, there are no plants here now, but what we do is enclose the plant leaves inside chambers, and these chambers are specially constructed to transmit ultraviolet radiation, which you find in sunlight, and we use the chambers to determine what uh, gases are emitted, and that includes methane. So although scientists know that this process is happening, you know that methane is being produced by by plants, albeit relatively recently, we still don't know how this methane is produced and this is where your labs come in. Yeah, the purpose of the project uh, was to investigate the role that ultraviolet radiation may play in causing this methane emission and it would seem that the ultraviolet radiation, when it impacts organic molecules within the leaf, can result in uh, the release of methane into the atmosphere. Right, well, let's go through sort of how you actually go about doing that. We've got two labs, small labs off a corridor, side by side. Let's start with the quieter one inside. What goes on in here? In this lab, we have a very powerful xenon arc lamp, which uh, can produce very high levels of visible and ultraviolet radiation. That's just this little sort of black box here produce a, a huge blinding sort of white bit of light, I'm assuming. Yes, absolutely. We have to wear eye protection when we're using this. And we filter out the infrared radiation, which would heat up the leaves of the plants. We then filter out particular wavelengths of ultraviolet so that we can determine which wavelengths of ultraviolet are producing the effects we observe. Do you use any types of plant in particular, or is, it, is that irrelevant? The purpose of the project was to evaluate uh, a range of plant types to determine whether particular plant types uh, produce more methane on UV radiation compared to others. Our partners in the project are the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, where they have a large range of plant types in their collection which are made available to us for this investigation. Right, well, let's go to the next lab, which is a little bit noisier. Here we go. There's a big fan whirring at the end. We've got a, a bench with what looked like sort of kitchen fluorescent tubes of lighting um, above it, almost like a sort of sunbed, but with all sort of wiring and copper tubing and syringes beneath, not the sort of sunbed you'd want to actually lay on. 
No, it is in fact very like a sunbed, but the tubes used in, in this system produce very high levels of ultraviolet B radiation, which would actually give us a suntan far too quickly and be quite dangerous. So you irradiate effectively the plants and then you simply attach some sort of a piece of equipment to to the plant in order to measure the, the methane. We must be talking about very small amounts of methane here. Yes, uh, one of the problems is measuring the very small amounts of methane produced, and we do this in two different ways. When we have a closed chamber where there's no air flowing through it, we can transfer gas samples in a syringe to the gas chromatograph on the other side of the lab where the concentrations are measured. We also have a monitor uh, beneath the system here which gives us continuous measurements of methane if the gas is flowing through the chamber. And what stage are you at at the moment in terms of of, of your project? This is the final stages of the project where we're completing uh, some of our measurements and we're analysing some of the chemical constituents of the leaves to see how they may be involved in the process. And at the end of it, what do you hope to gain? Obviously you, you want more of an insight into how the process works. Do you think you're at that stage of of getting it? Do you know how this process works now? We're fairly confident that ultraviolet radiation does result in the production of methane and some other trace gases from plant leaves. In terms of quantifying how much that is, it seems that it is still a very small amount, making quite a small contribution to global emissions of methane into the atmosphere. So there are still other areas to be discovered in terms of how methane is produced by plants. There may indeed be other mechanisms and there are reports in the literature that physical damage causes the emission of methane from plant leaves and also other environmental stresses like high temperature. Andy McLeod from the University of Edinburgh on the methane project. There's a longer version of that interview on the Planet Earth podcast which you can find on our website or via Planet Earth online. Incidentally, the same technique was also used by planetary scientists in meteorites recently. It allowed them to discover that meteorites bombarding the surface of Mars contain enough carbon to generate methane when exposed to sunlight. And that solved the problem of why methane's been detected on Mars too. And now back to our theme this week of planetary exploration. Coming up, what steps are being taken to ensure that we don't deposit life from Earth on the planets and moons that we send probes to explore? Before that, though, controlling a Mars rover is a bit like using a radio-controlled car, albeit a very expensive one, only it is very, very expensive when things also go wrong. In fact, the Curiosity mission that we've been hearing about is costing about £1 million for every day that is spent operating on the Martian surface. Now, this is partly because it can take up to a day to send each cycle of commands from Earth to Mars based on what the rover has done or found in the meantime. The mission planners therefore have to wait for the satellites that transmit the signals to be within sight of each other and the rover for the messages to go back and forth. But what about if we could identify sites of interest and then have the rovers find their own way there and do their own science? The European Space Agency's Star Tiger Seeker project, based at the UK's STFC Rutherford Appleton Laboratories, is trying to do this with an autonomous guidance system for rovers. And to explain more, the head of the Space Engineering and Technology Division at RAL Space, Kim Ward, is with us. First of all, how will this Seeker project actually deliver? What will it do? How will it work? The intent is to ignore two problems. Namely, we didn't have to worry about power or locomotion. The challenge that we were set by this Star Tiger program was to see if we could move autonomously, so without any interaction from the ground, over distances of two kilometres on three consecutive days. So the challenge was to move six kilometres in total without any interaction from the ground. This is the sort of thing that had never been done before. The early NASA rovers, um, Spirit and Opportunity, one of them only travelled eight kilometres or something in eight years and the other one 21 kilometres in eight years. We were trying to get over that problem of waiting for commands by just allowing the the rover to make its own decisions to do with, with navigation, so figure out where it's going. I'm surprised that this problem hasn't really already been solved because there are various initiatives. There's the DARPA challenge in the US, which is getting vehicles to drive themselves around really quite tricky courses. So there must obviously be a more fundamental problem in- involving actually getting these rovers to explore for themselves. What is that? 
You're right. The DARPA challenges are doing this type of thing with, with large vehicles. But some of the problems that we have on Mars and, and other bodies like that is that there are very few features. It's a very hostile terrain. You might have to drive around hazards, rocks and things. Um, there might be areas of, of quicksand or something like that that you need to avoid. And in order to do these things um, autonomously, is something that is beyond what's been done by DARPA challenges and so on. Plus, the DARPA challenges, you have absolutely limitless resources, whereas what we were doing um, with this experiment, at least as, as regards the sensors, to equip ourselves much as we would on Mars. So we didn't have ground-penetrating radars and we didn't have some of the lidars and things that you might have for some of the vehicles you're speaking about. So how did you solve the problem? Does it work? The only sensor that was really needed was a pair of stereo cameras. And from those, you, you build up a three-dimensional map of your surroundings. And then you have other software called path planning software that says, based on what I can see of these rocks, I know I've got to get over to that one over there. So I'll have to go around this rock and do this and, and these sorts of things. So it was all done completely using cameras. Otherwise, its fancy name is visual odometry. So that's the, the only technique that was used. We had a secondary objective, um, which was, by the way, when you're doing this autonomously, could you notice anything on the way that might be of interest to scientists later? Now, that side of it, we didn't manage quite to complete. Um, it was enough of a challenge, just the basic primary objective we had of, of um, just getting from A to B. Now, obviously, you can't go to Mars to test this out yet. Um, so how do you test whether or not it'll work? Well, you look for something that's fairly close to Mars-like terrain. And there are a few deserts in Europe and in North Africa. Morocco's quite well-known for some of its Mars-like terrain, but it has some other problems. At the time of year that we wanted to go, um, namely in June, July time, um, it's just too hot to exist almost, and all the computery and support equipment um, gets in trouble. You need security guards and that sort of thing if you want to retain your equipment overnight. So we found that the Atacama Desert in Chile, where there's quite a lot of infrastructure to support it, in particular we, we were based at the Paranal Observatory, where there's some nice workshops, but there's also a nice hotel. It's the one that was used in the James Bond film, Quantum Solace. So the infrastructure's there, but within range of that, you can get out into the most incredibly barren terrain. There's just no animals, there's no, not even any birds of that sort of area, um, and it almost never rains, and the, the rock structures and so on are very, very like the sort of thing that we would see on Mars. So it's, it was an excellent place to, to do this work. And in just 20 seconds, did it work when you tested it? Yeah, we were there for three weeks, and it was really only on the last day that we could jump from the chandeliers when on the last day they actually went five kilometres autonomously. And therefore, on the basis of that, the European Space Agency has pronounced the project a great success, albeit it's the first stage, really, in a series of things that, that will hopefully happen in the future. Kim, congratulations and thank you very much for joining us to talk about it. That was STFC's Kim Ward. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Dominic Ford. We're talking about exploration of distant worlds this week. We have with us Dr David Blake, Professor John Zarnecki and also Kim Ward. Now, we've got a whole host of questions um, for all of them. Um, we'll get through as many as we can. Adam Reeks is asking you, David, what are we expecting to learn on this mission to Mars that we haven't found from previous missions? Okay, well, good question. Uh, so we're going to a place we've never been. It's the uh, really the maybe the oldest place we've ever visited on Mars, and 
we hope to find there what kind of environments existed at the time of formation of these rocks. And on the Earth, we have no surfaces like this available. Earth is a very active tectonic planet, so by learning about habitability on early Mars, we also learn about habitability on early Earth. And we really would like to know, at these times when life formed on Earth, did anything like that happen on Mars? Darren Anthony is wondering how long this mission is scheduled to last for. Well, it's uh, supposed to last for 687 Mars uh, days to one Mars year throughout all the seasons. And uh, because it's a nuclear-powered rover, though, if we're still going after that time, we'll just keep right on trucking and uh, hopefully we'll last a good long time. That lovely analogy. Mike Inch has got a very interesting point, which he's saying the measures taken to test the landing, given the failure rate of previous Mars landing attempts, what have you done to test this very ambitious landing approach with the thing coming down on thrusters and then winching down this car onto the surface of Mars? (laughs) Well, I wasn't associated with that part of it, but they've done testing of almost every aspect. Uh, The supersonic parachute, uh, they tested the landing radar using airplanes and helicopters. They've tested the actual final little winching down of the rover here at JPL. And I guess I would say, in fact, modern missions uh, done by NASA have had a much better success record. So I did go through all the, the different reviews of the landing system because I was interested. And I came away realizing that, uh, first of all, I never wanted to be in a class uh, with one of those engineers because I would have just got wiped slick. And uh, secondly, that they're uh, very good. And I think this thing's going to work. All terrific questions. Thank you, everybody, so much for sending them all in. Unfortunately, we just don't have time to include all of them in this episode of the programme. So what we're going to do this week is to publish them as a special addendum podcast. We have a specials feed. If you look up on our website, nakedscientist.com, or our channel on iTunes, itunes.com slash scientists you'll see we have an RSS feed for a channel called Naked Scientists Specials or Special Editions. And your questions that haven't been included in the main programme will have been answered by John and David in there. So please go to nakedscientist.com slash podcasts and look on our navigation bar for the specials podcast or itunes.com slash naked scientists and look in our channel for the specials podcast. Subscribe to that and you can hear the conversation being continued there. Dominic, over to you. And now, speaking of outer space, here's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. An out-of-this-world question has crossed the ether and landed in the Naked Scientist's inbox. Hi, this is David Gould in Dublin, California. If scientists conclude that Mars is lifeless, will they decide to introduce life in order to terraform the planet? Before considering whether we should... Let's try and find out if we actually could. Hello, my name is Catherine Comley, and I'm the NASA Planetary Protection Officer. Firstly, we know that there's life on Earth that could survive in similar environments on Mars. There are organisms that live deep beneath the surface of South Africa that live on the radioactive decay of the rocks around them. If they were put in a similar location on Mars, they would certainly be able to survive there. There are also lichens and other organisms that at least can survive in many of the aspects of the environment of Mars that we can mimic in labs on Earth. People have done studies to try and understand how long it would take and what do you need to do to terraform life on Mars. First, you would need to swarm up the planet a little bit, and then you would introduce organisms that could change the atmosphere, photosynthetic organisms that would break down the carbon dioxide and turn it into oxygen so that humans might be able to live there. That process would take about 100,000 years. So it is possible, certainly, to terraform Mars. We have organisms on Earth that could probably live there with only a small amount of tweaking. So yes, modelling predicts that we could terraform Mars with life from Earth. But do we want to terraform it? Back to Cassie, whose job it is to protect our planets. My job as Planetary Protection Officer is to make sure that NASA does not contaminate Mars with life from Earth. 
because we want to study life that might be already on Mars, we don't want to introduce life until we have a chance to study what's already there. This is specified in the Outer Space Treaty. Article 9 says that we will not cause harmful contamination of other locations or adverse changes to the environment of the Earth as we explore extraterrestrial locations. And it's also a good idea from agency policy because the reason we're going to Mars is to look for life. And it's easy to find life on Mars. All you need to do is bring it with you. Thank you, Dr. Catherine Connolly, Planetary Protection Officer for NASA. So yes, we could terraform Mars with life from Earth, but humans are trying not to do this. There are strict regulations in place so that we can continue to explore, rather than contaminate, any indigenous life that might already exist up there. Sticking with the solar system theme, we take an energetic skip to our next question. This is David from the States. I have two questions about pretty much the same thing. Is it true that we get vitamin D from the sun? And if so, does that mean that we, like plants, photosynthesize? So is a human producing vitamin D a bit like a photosynthesizing plant? Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to David Blake, John Zarnecki, Kate Mitchell, Kim Ward, and our production team, Hannah Critchlow, Tom Simpkins, Martha Henriquez, and Ben Valsler. We're back next week answering more of your science questions. Do join us if you can. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. 